And we're back. Episode 6 of Tampa Bay Sports with the Hendersons. The podcast that Elaine Henderson once said, it's okay. Yeah, but she's she's really a tough critic. She is. But hopefully you're not as tough. So I'm Ben Henderson with my father, former Tampa Tribune sports writer, Joe Henderson. That's me. And we're here to talk to you about Tampa Bay Sports. However, one problem, Father, none of the local Tampa sports teams played in the game this week. Well, so we will do them what they do in all good podcasts. They'll talk about stuff that might happen or could happen or probably won't happen, but will make people believe it could. Yeah, that's something we could do. So kind of an awkward week in the sports calendar for Tampa, as this, I believe, on paper, is the only week in which none of our Tampa Bay sports teams are actually in a game. This largely in part because the well, lightning... Time out. Time out. Time out. USF basketball is playing. Pro- professional sports. Professional. You didn't specify that. I, I didn't. But I don't think anyone's paying USF players under the table. Otherwise, they'd be way better. Fair point. Details. We play, we play by the rules at USF. Well... And you see what result that gets you. So the Lightning were on technically their bye week leading into the All-Star break, which means zero Tampa Bay Lightning games this week. However, last night was the annual All-Star game played in St. Louis. Father, how much of the All-Star game did you watch? Let me see. None. I don't blame you. You didn't miss much. I watched the first third of it because that had Hedman and Vasilevsky in it. The Atlantic Division knocking off the Metropolitan Division by some arbitrary number. And by God, was that some terrible hockey. Well, Even three on three. You know, All-Star Weekend really, at least in the NHL, but I think really in the NBA as well and uh, even Major League Baseball is kind of trending in that direction, is just something for the local fans to be entertained by. You go out, you pay too much money for tickets. Uh, they try to give you a good experience. and But as far as compelling TV, uh, not, not really. Right. So before I get to the local experience, let me ask you this question because you've covered plenty of all-star games out yes, there. So some of the narrative, and it's almost cliche at this point to be like, oh, the All-Star game's terrible. How are they going to fix it? However, Father, you've covered plenty of All-Star games. At what point, and this is a general across all sports, not counting baseball, did All-Star games start becoming the meaningless exercise that they have become? Well, that is a great question. And I'll go back. I don't know. remember the exact dates, but uh, baseball is the sport I covered primarily. I covered a lot of all-star games in that. And it began to jump the track when they instituted the home run derby and they had their own version of the skills competition. Okay. And the home run derby, all that stuff was done in the afternoon before, you know, uh, before the day before the game. And it was fun. You know, it wasn't all this showbiz razzmatazz. Well, then ESPN saw that, hey, people like the home run derby, so let's put it in prime time. Oh, wait a minute. No, let's let's uh, do this multi-tiered format 
garbage that, you know, wears a player out before they even step on the field. And after a while, there's only so much you can take of back, 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 gone. And they're tossing. Okay. They're, you know, sure. They could toss balls like that to me all day and I wouldn't get it out of the infield. But to watch these guys, these multi-million dollar sluggers go up there and swing at the kind of pitches that you would get in slow pitch softball is just, you know, it's not compelling to me. So that is when, to me, the other sports began to copy that, and it became all about, you know, the, ooh, I'm the home run derby champion, or I'm the, you know, I have the hardest slap shot or whatever. And, I mean, that might be fun for people in attendance, but I ain't going to watch it on TV. Yeah, I'll just say – couple of closing thoughts on the all-star game the nhl posted they do this like throwback thursday retro tuesday whatever it is on their youtube channel and so this week they posted highlights of the 1997 all-star game and this is when guys like wayne gretzky were still playing so still you know the old school kind of players and go on youtube watch that that was just as awful hockey in addition to i know your favorite that had the glow puck oh yeah oh yeah yeah. so that was the the all-star game this isn't a new phenomenon that guys aren't trying hard no it's it's not in fact if you uh, remember a few years ago in the uh, pro bowl uh, the game was so bad that uh, roger goodell came out and said this is an embarrassment to the nfl and if they're not going to try any harder than this we'll just cancel it yeah, and to give you context of how much we care about the Pro Bowl, it's literally being played right now as we speak, as we record this podcast. So, yeah. And one final thought about the All-Star Game. So, if you're going to market it as, oh, it's a game for the fans. Uh, as you touched on, Father, the tickets for this thing are stupid. A couple of years ago, it was held in Tampa. It actually got positive reviews in Tampa, but I think that was more so because everyone went to a certain parade that's happening this weekend Uh, that might have inebriated their... Might have confused their thoughts a little bit. Yeah. So when I was out in Tampa, as you know, I'm a season ticket holder, and they sent out the pricing tiers of, hey, come to the All-Star game. And I remember looking at the prices like, no, that's a stupid amount of money to pay for a game that nobody's going to try at. And if you're going to say it's a game for the fans, that's fine. Then make it a game for the fans and at a price that as a fan, I want to go to. Well, in a game, I'll, I'll close off my part of this segment with this. If you want to make it a real competition – you're going to risk getting players hurt. Nobody wants to see a player get hurt in an all-star game. And so um, players naturally go out there and they protect themselves. And so that right away you tell yourself, okay, I'm really not getting whatever the sport is. At least in Major League Baseball, I think they do try. Well, you can hide it better in baseball. Well, I mean, even if the pitcher's just throwing straight fastballs, I mean, you can hide the fact that as a hitter. Well, most pitchers are only going to be out there for an inning. Right. 
So it's basically a bullpen day for them. Well, anyway. yeah. So they they'll light it up, but and and pitchers don't want to be embarrassed and vice versa. But in the other sports, nobody cares. Yep. Anyway, so that was the anti All Star game last night. Uh, Headman scored a couple goals. Bazzi made some saves. Yeah. And that's all that really mattered. Anyway, speaking of Lightning, though, we do have, since they didn't play any games this week, it gave us an opportunity to reflect on the unofficial first half of the season. And so we here at Tampa Bay Sports at the Hendersons, we're going to hand out our inaugural, not first annual, inaugural. Yeah, I've taught you well. Get it get it right, other podcasts. Mid-season awards. Are you excited for this, Father? Uh, what? What'd you say? <laughs> so our uh, winners. I of, think the Lightning had an actual full season award last year. How'd that work out? Well, they got a banner out of it. It's, it's a nice banner. It's got oh, words. That and, reminds them of what they didn't do. Yeah. Anyway. anyway. So these are our mid-season awards. These are completely arbitrary. Our winners win nothing except the adulation of all of you and us. And that's worth something, right? Sure. Yeah. All right, so here we go. We have several categories. Our first category, this is the most surprising player of the year so far. The candidates that come to mind on this, Alex Kalorn, Jan Ruda, Mitchell Stevens, or Andre Palat. Father, who has been your most surprising player to this point? Well, I believe that would be the guy who's got 20 goals at the intermission. That would be Alex Kalorn. Yeah, he's certainly the most obvious choice. I will say, we talked about him a couple episodes ago. There is some buyer beware because a lot of his numbers are the same. The one number that has shot up, which has led to 20 goals, is his shooting percentage is at 18%, which normal shooting percentage is around like 9 to 10%. So he's getting shots to go in that he wasn't before on that. I'm not saying I want him to fall off a cliff. I want him to sustain this. But as we talked about with batting percentages in baseball, it is very difficult to maintain 18% shot percentage. True that. Uh, but your other candidates in this, Jan Ruda, he was kind of an afterthought. And alongside Victor Hedman, he's been very competent and playing very well. Mitchell Stevens came in, took Matthew Joseph's job, basically, and gave him a ticket to Syracuse. And Andre Pallant, now that he's healthy, he uh, is playing probably his best hockey since his days with the triplets. So hopefully that continues. Our next category, this is an award you don't want to win. <laughs> this is the most disappointing player to this half. We have Tyler Johnson, Matthew Joseph, Alex Volkov, and one that's going to be controversial that I put on this list, Ryan McDonough. Father, who is your most disappointing player to this half? I'm going to say Joseph. Because much was expected, little was delivered, and he has vanished from our consciousness. Yeah, as we talked about last week, a one-way ticket to Syracuse. And he has not been invited back. Uh, I do want to explain why I put McDonough on this list. Please. So he is the 16th highest paid defenseman in the NHL. So you expect 
you know, top 20 numbers that come out of him. And it's not that he's playing poorly. And this is where sometimes we go, oh, we're being too critical on the guy. He's not playing bad. However, if you look at the way the Lightning have done their defensive pairings, so it's McDonough with Eric Chernak. They've put Hedman a lot with Jan Ruda, which might explain why Ruda's numbers look good. And they've put a lot of Sergachev with Shattenkirk. And one thing that is undeniable is that the Chernak-McDonough pairing has the weakest overall numbers of the three. It's not saying they're bad, but their possession numbers are basically 50-50, where the other two are above 50%. And their five-on-five plus-minus rating is actually in the negative whereas the other two pairings are in the positive. And I think a lot of that has to do with neither of those guys are offensive drivers of the puck, whereas your other two pairings have someone who can bring the puck out of the zone. So I think that affects it. Uh, Father, are you concerned at all by the Ryan McDonough numbers, or are you content with where he has been at? Well, no, I'm not concerned. Um, Basically, I look at the overall team, and all right, he's fitting in, he's filling a role, and while there was some scuffling for the first part of the season, as they adjusted uh, to a style of play they believe they need to do, they're winning now, and by all expectations, the winning will continue, so my attitude would be, if he's filling a role he's pleasing the coach and he doesn't have to worry about pleasing us. All right. Next category. This is the best on ice moment so far. Best on ice moment of the season. There are probably plenty. These are the ones that came to my mind. If I left your favorite moment off the list, it didn't come to my mind. So it wasn't that great. That's how we roll here. Hmm. So options we have here, you have the Carter Verhage hat trick that came recently. You have the Andre Vasilevsky last-second save versus Pittsburgh, which led to a 10-minute review of whether or not it went in. You have the Braden Point goal at the end of the first period at Boston. A literal buzzer beater came with, like, half a second to go. You have the Anthony Sorelli overtime goal versus Ottawa. And I also put on here the Kucherov last-minute goal versus L.A. the week before the Lightning went on break after the Lightning had pulled their goalie and Kucherov got the goal with a minute to go to tie it. Father, what's been your favorite on-ice moment so far? Well, I will uh, disregard your last two, uh, Sorelli against Ottawa and Kucherov against L.A. because those are bad teams and you really shouldn't be struggling with them that way to where you need a miracle finish. Am I right? Am I right? Um, I'm going to disagree. Well, of course you would. Um the um, I'd go with the Vazzy save against Pittsburgh. Yeah, fun, funny moment about that was my boy Felix and I were at that game. And Vazzy, from this uh, angle that we're at, because the save is on the opposite side of the ice from where we sit, is you couldn't really tell. It looked almost like McDonough had blocked the shot. And so we're like, oh, yeah, lightning went. So we were hitting the bathroom real quick before we left. And so we walk out. And then, like, you hear the music, like, they're reviewing it. I'm like, wait, what? 
And then they're reviewing it, and then the ref comes out and is like, no goal! And you're like, oh, okay, well, thanks for that. Um, I am going to say the Sorelli overtime goal against Ottawa, mainly because Lightning were scuffling at this point. As you mentioned, Ottawa is a bad team. However, if you're in overtime against a bad team, losing against them is an even bigger problem. And it serves as a juxtaposition because this is the same game that Kucherov got benched at. And the way he scored that goal, just out-hustling a couple Ottawa guys, basically one-on-two, and then crashing into the net and scoring the goal. I think it served as a message of, hey, boys, this is how we're going to win hockey games, not by, you know, lazadaisically skating around the ice and scoring goals as we feel. All right, next category. This is the biggest off-ice moment, off-the-ice moment so far. Our candidates, we have the Louis Domingue trade as he was sent to New Jersey. You have Matthew Joseph being officially sent to Syracuse. Um, This is a bit of a stretch. However, Nikita Kucherov being benched since he was off ice for this to happen. Or our GM Breezebois throwing his support behind Cooper and not firing him this season. Father, what has been your biggest off the ice moment to this point? Well, following through on your logic... I would say it's Kucherov being benched because um, that was certainly um, a bold stroke by Cooper, sent um, a strong message to the room, as they say, and um, which leads me to your next category. Am I surprised Cooper kept his job? No, because the light, you, you point out that seven coaches have been uh, fired already this year in the NHL. Um, okay, but the Lightning don't roll that way. They are known for having a system, having patience, realizing there will be ups, there will be downs. There were people calling for Cooper to be fired after the playoffs last year. Uh, I was not one of them. Um, and the Lightning believe in their system. So they're not, no, they're not going to fire Cooper, especially since Breezewap probably – you think Cooper launched this new style of play, just drew it up on a, on a napkin somewhere? They did it in a summer of meetings. So the GM has to have his back. So that didn't surprise me. And as far as the uh, Domingue trade, yeah, everybody knew they had to trade him. Right. And Joseph being sent to Syracuse, we've talked about that. Sure. So just touching on the – the, the correct answer is Kucherov being benched. That took some stones to do. Because you're in a tie game, and you're like, hey, Kucherov, you could score a goal at any moment. But Cooper had the stones to bench him. I do want to ask you this question, because we didn't get to touch on it last week. So the Lightning, over the last 14 games, have gone 12-2. and That is obviously a great stretch. Do you think, though, that that stretch helped save Cooper's job? Because let's pretend they go 7-7 and during that stretch. So that would take 10 points off the board for the Lightning, which instead of 62 points would put them at 52 points. And at that point, you are nine points out of the wild card, and uh, that would put you five points behind Toronto for third in the division 
Do you think this stretch saved Cooper's job? You know, that's a hypothetical. And all I know is I go with what is. And there are there are teams that you have high expectations for that there are various reasons why they fumble. Obviously, Toronto made a change. Felt like they had to, even though the, you know they were should be clearly one of the league's elite teams. Um, but did it save Cooper's job? I think the noise in the community and the Lightning fans would have been really loud if that had happened. But I also think Breezebois, you know, uh, he learned at the foot of the master, Stevie Eiserman. Mm-hmm. And Stevie Y uh, does preach patience. Now, you know, uh, he'll make a move when he has to, but – Cooper has been one of the most successful coaches in the league. One thing he hadn't done is win the cup. Well, a lot of guys haven't won the cup. So it took, how long did it take the Capitals to finally win a cup? Uh, quite a few tries. So, you know, to answer your question, there would have been concern, but no, I don't think they would have fired him. All right. Last thought, last category in this uh, midseason awards, inaugural edition. Our first half team MVP and your obvious choices here, Kucherov, Point, Stamkos, Kaloran, Hedman, as of late, Vasilevsky. Father, who are you crowning as your first half team MVP? Well, again, it's it's easy to look at Kaloran and say, where would they be without his production? Um, so maybe he deserves it, the coveted first half MVP award. Yeah. But I would say probably Hedman. I would agree with you. Because he's got 41 points, which for a defenseman through 46 games is, I mean, that's top tier stuff. His plus minus is plus 11, which again, higher tier stuff. Honestly, if it wasn't for John Carlson of Washington, Hedman would be your runaway winner to win the Norris Trophy back to back. Mm -hmm. So I don't think you can minimize the importance Hedman has on this team. And... If you're looking at the playoff collapse, part of that's because Hedman was hurt 100%. And a healthy Hedman, I mean, this this team can go as far as they want to. So don't underestimate Victor Hedman's importance to the Lightning. So there you go. Uh, Congratulations to all our winners. We promise, unlike the Grammys, that this was not rigged at all and not predetermined. And we will send you your award once we get sponsorship deals. Yeah. That's there you thing. go. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And after this interlude, we're going to make some quick comments about the Bucks and which of the two Super Bowl teams do we prefer the Bucks to be built like? Tampa Bay Sports with the Hendersons after an interlude. And we're back with the only podcast that's recording during the Pro Bowl or something like that. Father, how do you feel about the Pro Bowl again? Again? Again. Um, I always pride myself um, on two things. Never watching it. And then uh, being very happy when nobody gets seriously hurt. What's your favorite Pro Bowl memory? None. Great. Good talk. (laughs) 
So it is the Super Bowl week. By the time you are listening to this, the Chiefs and the 49ers are going to play in the Super Bowl. Uh, I'm still surprised the Bucks apparently not in it somehow. Weird. It's that old weird thing. They didn't win enough games. <sighs> the league is so unfair that way. They they really are picking at the Bucks. Yeah. So we're just gonna have uh, this question as it relates to the Super Bowl because there is a bit of a juxtaposition between the two participants in this year's big game. You have the Kansas City Chiefs. High-octane offense, lots of weapons from quarterback to receiver. And then you have the San Francisco 49ers who are a little more defensively built, which would make sense given their GM. And on offense, it's more of a just kind of gain what you need to, good offensive line, run as you need to, and don't turn the ball over. So, Father, I'm going to ask you this question. If you replace Jason Light as manager of the Tampa Bay Bucks. Who would you build the Bucks in the image of? Would you build them in the image of the Chiefs, or would you build them in the image of the 49ers? Well, if you were looking to uh, win fantasy leagues by scoring a lot of points, you would build them in the image of the Chiefs. If you're looking to win Super Bowls, I think I would go in the direction of the 49ers. And here's why. That's not to say that Kansas City won't come out next week and blow their doors off. But right now, the 49ers are showing what a team can do with suffocating defense, running the ball. What a concept. Wow. And everybody's like down on Garoppolo because he, well, he only threw eight passes uh, in the uh, NFC Championship game and stuff. Well, guess what? He didn't have to throw any more than that because they were running all over top of him. And if they can do that in the Super Bowl, they will beat the Chiefs because it's hard for uh, Mahomes to score if he doesn't have the ball. So I would build the Bucks more like the 49ers. Yeah, fun fact. So the Bucks, when they won their Super Bowl, uh, according to the great World Wide Web mm-hmm. of knowledge – that they were ranked 25th in the league in total yards gained. Mm-hmm. And, and that's with the genius John Gruden running the offense. Right. And so, you know, they had Brad Johnson at quarterback. That's a guy. Yeah. Yeah. But they won a Super Bowl with him because they were built around the defense. And, you know, prior to Gruden, they had Tony Dungy who had built up that defense and it just took a couple things to go their way to finally get over the hump. But I think if you were looking for a team that has more sustainability to it, uh, I would say it's the 49ers. As you said, it doesn't necessarily represent who's going to win this upcoming Sunday. But I think if you're looking for long-term success in this league, the 49ers I think have a more realistic shot because with the chiefs, they've got the perfect whirlwind of young, talented guys on cheap contracts because father, what's going to happen in a couple years with Patrick Mahomes contract. Uh, He's going to make a lot of money. Yeah. And what happens when you have to start paying your quarterback an extra 20 to 25 million compared, compared to what you were. You have to tell other players 
perhaps you should go play somewhere else. Yeah, and and that's going to be their problem is you know once Mahomes comes off this rookie deal, he's going to easily command thirty plus million a year yeah. unless he takes the Tom Brady esque sweetheart deal, and that means you have to shortchange other areas of your team. Whereas on defense, you can get highly talented players for not as much cap space as compared to what a top-tier quarterback is going to cost you. And we've seen, in a case of like the Seattle Seahawks, this is sustainable to at least be successful and good. Um, I don't know if the Seahawks necessarily go into next year thinking they're going to win a Super Bowl, but... You know, with that Legion of Boom, they got one Super Bowl, almost a second if only Pete Carroll had called halfback dive. But I have, a, I have a fun stat for you. All right, fun stat. Let's would hear it, it surprise you to know that the 49ers outscored the Chiefs this year? That would be surprising. 479 to 451. Wow. So it's almost like our preconceived notions don't always matter. There were eight games in the regular season where the 49ers scored over 30 points. If they get into a shootout, they can they can play that game. Yeah. Everybody overreacted to what they did against the Packers mm-hmm. because the Packers couldn't stop Mostert right. from running. Right. So, hey, let's just keep giving the ball to him. Right. Well, and, and if you're looking for sustainability, honestly, that's the Patriot way is yeah. the Patriots are built from defense first. Then your offensive line. Yes, you have a talented quarterback, but it's not like they gave him that many great receivers over the years to deal with. But I mean, look at last year's Super Bowl. That was like a what seven to six or whatever nonsense game going into the fourth quarter. Yeah, it was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's what happens when you build up your defense. It's always going to give you a shot. So to answer our question, for me, if I was the GM of the Bucks. I'm building more in the model of the 49ers compared to the Chiefs. All right. There we go. We've solved that problem. We have. What else can we solve? Ed, world hunger, maybe? We should. Yeah. Listen to our next podcast, World Hunger. All right. We're going to have another interlude. And when we come back, the Rays got some praise this week. Tampa Bay Sports with the Hendersons. That's our last segment of the day. And we're going to talk about the local baseball team, the Tampa Bay Rays, even though they play in St. Pete. And the Rays got some praise this week, however, due to their farm system, as Baseball America put out their rankings of the top 100 baseball prospects in America. And Father, the Rays, as it turns out for the second year in a row, had the top prospect in all of baseball. Well, of course they do. That's that's the Ray way. We're talking about Wander Franco here, or Franco, I guess. Um, he, I'm excited to see him. Um, I don't know if we'll see him this year, but uh, you know they they have they've got the formula, and 
so they're developing these young prospects. That's how they keep their payroll manageable. They have a, a what must be a super secret way of identifying their talent that they want because they're always up there with this. And we're now seeing the results in the standings. They are. So this is his second year considered the top prospect in baseball. He took over this after Vladimir Guerrero Jr. was promoted to the Toronto Blue Jays. So he took over that top spot. So Franco is a shortstop. And last year he played 52 games in what is considered high A Mm -hmm. uh, minor league baseball with the Charlotte Stone Crabs. Great, great nickname. Fantastic nickname. And with the Stone Crabs, he had a 339 batting average and a 408 on base percentage. Now, Baseball America says that Willie Adamas is a better fielder at shortstop and that Franco may fit in as a second baseman with the Rays. So father, I know you've seen a lot of high level prospects come and go throughout the years. Um, if you're the Rays, knowing that you have Adamas right now at shortstop, do you continue to groom Franco at that position or do you potentially prep him with the idea that he might play second? Well, the answer uh, would be yes to both um, because the name of the game in, in Major League Baseball right now, especially for a franchise like the Rays, is versatility. You know, uh, we go back to Ben Zobrist, and when he was with the Rays, they said what that effectively did was give the Rays a 28-man roster because Zobrist could play so many different positions. And the more you can – you can fill in where you're needed, the more valuable you're going to be. Now, there's another thing to consider. Um, you know, you we assume, we hope, Adamas and Franco, you know, are healthy and wealthy and, and happy and uh, never have to play in Montreal. But what if one of them gets hurt? What if one of them, you know, all of a sudden begins to fizzle out a little bit? Um, there's a wise saying in baseball that a prospect is somebody who hasn't done it yet. So it's a bit of a leap from the Charlotte Stone Crabs to Tropicana Field. I think we would agree with that. So let's let the kid do what he does. He's very young. Let him him mature, percolate, before we crown him the next great thing. Right. So that's going to be my next question for you is when it comes to prospects – what do you find is maybe the biggest deficiency or hole that prevents them from getting to the big stage, even when they're as highly touted as Franco? Well, gosh, there, there's not just one thing, but I would say, first off, if you're, let's say you're used to being the number one prospect and you get up to the major leagues and you think, okay, I'm, I'm this hot stuff and you go out there and there's, you know, a lot of pitchers out there ready to prove that you're not like, I don't know, Garrett Cole. Yeah. He's, he's, he's good. Um, and the game speeds up. It's a lot of things. Uh, can you handle the money? Can you handle the, the longer season? Can you handle the physical demands? So, you know, 
that's why you've got to be cautious. And the Rays are going about it the right way, developing their system, but it takes time. Yeah. And so even if he were to fizzle out, one positive note for the Rays is that they did lead all of baseball with the most prospects in the top 100. And so I guess for me, you know, the trade they made a couple weeks ago with the Cardinals makes a little more sense because when you have this deep of a prospect pool, maybe you're a little more willing to part with one of your prospects. Um, all right. One last note here. So USF this week um, had a little bit of a local blitz tour, so to speak. So Jeff Scott tweeted out that him and all of his assistant coaches hit up every single Tampa Bay area high school this week, which is certainly a positive thing and certainly trying to get his footprint in the door. Uh, Father, what is your reaction to this? Does this seem like a fairly standard thing that a incoming coach would do? Uh, do you think this is something he will try to do every year? I think it's something he will try to do every year because it should be a standard thing to do, but it isn't always. And I, you know, had pretty good relationships over the years with a lot of the the veteran high school football coaches in Hillsborough County, and they routinely complained that USF would paid no attention to them. Or if they did, you know, it was kind of glancing. And we go back and we look at the number of players that have left the Tampa Bay area. Such as Tampa Bay Vipers quarterback Aaron Murray. Yeah. Huh? 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 And, you know, Ray Ray McLeod, where did he go? I think he went to Clemson. So um, there is, you know, there, there has to be a concerted effort to keep the prospects. You know, way back in the day, a guy that you probably don't even know his name, Howard Schnellenberger, when. I mean, I know the name. He coached at Miami yes, and then he did. followed up at Florida Atlantic. Yes, yeah. He, yeah. Take when, that. When he went to Miami, he drew boundaries around South Florida and he declared it the state of Miami. And he said, we will get every good player out of here. And before long, Miami was on the road to winning national championships. I think Jeff Scott is doing absolutely the right thing. He's, he's everything that you would want and more from a guy who's never coached a game. One last note on USF. Their basketball team played Wichita State this week, which as a personal note, um, coached by a former Winthrop coach, Greg Marshall, we liked him at Winthrop. He beat Notre Dame. And then we stopped being as good. Imagine what happens when Greg Marshall leaves. So uh, they lose to Wichita State 56-43. USF has fallen to 1-5. and five. Oh, we can update that. Oh, we can update that. They were blown out today at Houston. Okay, that's probably which, which is ranked. So they're now 1-6 and six in conference play. I saw a thing in the papers this week, however – that claimed there was still a pathway for USF to somehow make the tournaments. Father, how are you feeling about that? I don't like to ridicule other writers. Yeah. Um, it's a tough beat, <laughs> but uh, no, there's, and here's the problem. I know what they're trying to say. Oh, they played good defense. They can't shoot the ball. You mean scoring 43 points? Yeah. Is... They, they, 
And there, there's a reason for this. Their best player was injured back in before the season started. He's lost for the year. They have no outside scoring. Everything consists of, you know, they're either a clank from three, a clank from mid-range, or a guard lowering his shoulder and trying to drive to the basket and getting a charging foul. That's who they are at this point. They're not going to get better. We just have to kind of move on from this season, get healthy next year, and try again. Well, certainly, I mean, we hope they make it, but, you know, it's not they, the odds aren't looking <clears throat> great. No. So that's all we have for you for this week in Tampa Sports with the Hendersons. We will be recording Monday next week because next Sunday there, there's like an important football game, something. I, I've heard it's a it's a big game. Uh, uh, it, it's the Puppy Bowl. The Puppy Bowl. Uh, the Kitty Bowl. All right. I'm going to say it. 49ers 24-21. Sounds like a great prediction. I'm not going to make a prediction because Old Takes Exposed might find this and prove me wrong. So take that, Old Takes Exposed. Having said that. You're this, a wuss. I am. But what else is new? Move on. So this is Tampa Bay Sports with the Hendersons. I'm Ben Henderson. I'm Joe. And we will see you next week. Enjoy the Super Bowl, everyone. Take care. <laughs>